I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. A warning to listeners. Today's episode is all about true crime. Some of the themes explored in today's episode may be disturbing for some listeners. Please take care while listening. Let's say you wanted to make a phone call to the CIA. How would you do that? Well, in 2012, it was pretty simple. You go to their website, CIA.gov, find the number listed on their page, and give them a call. Today, obviously, that's no longer the case. But in April of 2012, that's exactly how a man named Flavio Georgescu was able to contact the CIA with a tip. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Today on Podcast Playlist, we'll hear some compelling new true crime stories. Flavio Georgescu is known amongst his community as a fixer. You know when you're looking for a specific service and someone says, I know a guy? Well, he's the guy. One day, Flavio was approached by a friend to procure weapons for the FARC, a Colombian paramilitary group. At the time, it was officially recognized as a terrorist organization by the U.S. It's at that point Flavio decides it might be best to call the CIA to tip them off. Little did he know that this tip would escalate into a case that not only involved the CIA, but the DEA and the FBI. This story is the focus of season two of Alphabet Boys. The podcast reveals secret investigations of so-called alphabet agencies, and the show includes undercover government recordings that were never intended for the public to hear. In this clip, we'll hear Flavio call in his tip to the CIA. Flavio's called the CIA, asking to meet with an agent. The first lady, she didn't want to talk with me. She was keep sending me to the U.S. Embassy. And the CIA agent is very skeptical. If you don't want to tell me over the phone, I'm not going to send somebody out to meet you. Okay, if you only need, if you need to talk in person only, then you need to go to the embassy. People knows me in the U.S. Embassy. I, have, I used to have friends over there working over there. Well, I'm going to look like delusional talking about some nonsense things. And I said, no, send me to Vienna. You have a, a central to collect intelligence in Vienna. Send me over there in Austria, and I'm going to talk over there with somebody, and we see what's going on from there, and we're going to f- do a strategy. The CIA agent Flavio is talking to, she doesn't appear to think Flavio is for real. Okay. So you do personal security all over the world. You're connected to all these different people. And you had somebody call you and say, can you get yeah. grenades and guns for this guy in Colombia? Not, not specified grenades, a lot of ammunition. Ammunition, AK-47, a lot of, a okay. lot of stuff. Okay, so what I'm telling you, as a U.S. citizen, go to the U.S., the American embassy, and tell them you need to speak with someone, okay? Yeah, you. This is the the easy way for you, but you know a lot of. Okay, a lot well, of no, it's not the easy way for me. You're being very difficult. 
you run a business, but you don't have a name for your business. It, no, it just, I, it, I, you're I, telling I, me that you're very, very connected, but people are calling you to, to, to get ammunition and AK-47s, so it really doesn't sound like anything that we can discuss over the phone. So I'm telling you, for your safety, yes. you need to go to the U.S. Embassy. Okay, well, we can't help you. Thank you. Goodbye. And she hung up the phone. And after that, I got a call back saying that person, the second one, uh, my name is Sachin Saibun, and we start to talk. In other words, despite all the skepticism and, well, attitude of that CIA agent, Flavio's tip got escalated to another CIA agent. Okay. Well, as I understand it, I don't, I don't think there was anything that the agency could do to, to assist or facilitate what you're trying to accomplish. This is that second agent. We didn't have anyone that can, can meet with you. And um, again, I don't know I the details like of the conversation, but it's a determination. Yeah, I was always just trying to be useful to the U.S. government because I love that country and, you know, I'm so proud to be a U.S. US citizen. That's all. You know, if it is not anything interesting for you, I don't care because I'm not doing any deal. I'm not uh, going to to help these people. But I was thinking if you have any interest in this situation because it's easy to follow up these people, you know, which maybe it's a case for you or, you know. You have to know everything which has happened. Flavio is again saying directly to the CIA, hey, American intelligence agency, these guys seem like illegal arms traffickers. You want to maybe do something about it? If so, great. But if not, no worries. If you don't want this CIA, all good. I'll drop it. Well, I mean, I think if you were forthright with all the details and we could verify your story, that's something we we might look into and pass to the right authorities. This is the moment when this whole story could have stopped. But suddenly, with Flavio acting all coy, the agent now seems a little more interested. And he starts asking Flavio questions. You said you have a a company? A personal security? No, I work... No, no, I work for some private people, like I'm a um, security advisor. I clear up the team for you on Unisa. Flavio is basically saying he's a fixer, a guy who has relationships and can make things happen. Expensive things, hard to arrange services. He's vague. But then again, fixers are supposed to be discreet. A guy from, uh, from Los Angeles, he said, you know, I have some clients. They want to do the first deal for $10 million, which is not that big, but they want to see uh, everything goes smoothly and everything is perfect. And I said, okay, what they needed? And they sent me two different lists with the merchandise they need. And they said, I asked for the first time, I asked for the end user certificate. You know what the end user certificate it is? No, I'm not familiar with it. Oh, end user certificate, it is a a paper which has to prove to the factory which is the end user for this kind of ammunition, for this kind of guns, for everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Flavio mentioned something there called an end user certificate. This is something that people who have experience doing weapons deals know all about. 
Legitimate international weapons deals require an official piece of paper certifying the final destination for the weapons. In other words, the end user certificate certifies that A, the buyer is a legitimate weapons purchaser, B, the buyer is going to be the one actually using the weapons, and C, the buyer doesn't intend to transfer these weapons to someone else. A weapons deal without an end user certificate, that's a red flag, a telltale sign of arms trafficking. And when I'm asked for that, when I asked for this paper, they said, no, we don't have one. And uh, maybe if we increase the price, can you use a middleman in this transaction? I said, you know, our conversation has to end right now because I'm not getting involved in anything like that. And they said, you know, maybe you think about blah, 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 it's good money, you know. Flavio is saying that Andy told him that the Colombian buyer doesn't have an end-user certificate. But if Flavio can arrange for an end-user certificate, there'd be some big money in that. Believe me or not, you don't know me, but when I have the, uh, the, the chance to help U.S. government and help that country, I consider my country too, I, I help them. Every time when FBI needs me for uh, Russians, Romanians, which they do a lot of bad things in the United States, I help them. And with my help, a lot of government confiscate a lot of cash, a lot of houses, a lot of cars. You know, I bring some money to the Uncle Sam all the time. Flavio speaks fast with a thick Romanian accent. And it's unclear how closely the CIA agent on the phone is paying attention. For all I know, he could be doodling in a notepad while Flavio is spilling his guts. It might have been easy for him to miss what Flavio just said. Maybe you even missed it. Flavio said, every time when the FBI needs me for Russians, Romanians, I help them. And with my help, the government has confiscated a lot of cash, a lot of houses, a lot of cars. I bring money to Uncle Sam all the time. Flavio is telling the CIA that he's not just some random crank calling in, claiming to have information about arms traffickers. Flavio is telling them that he's worked with the government before, specifically with the FBI. He's saying, you can trust me. I've done this sort of thing. And I'm really good at it. That was Alphabet Boys from Western Sound and iHeart Podcasts. The show was reported, written, and hosted by Trevor Aronson. A warning, this next podcast discusses suicide. In her journals, Alana Chen talked about her love of fashion and her dream of one day becoming a nun. The people who knew her would describe her as a saint because of her deep devotion to God. But in 2019, at the age of 24, she died by suicide. What led up to this? Her family believes the answer lies in a secret she kept from everyone, including them. As a teen, Alana confessed to her priest that she was attracted to women. She was told to never tell her parents. And over the next seven years, Alana received conversion therapy in secret. The podcast Dear Alana is a spiritual memoir that unravels the mystery of what happened to Alana Chen. 
Simon Kent Fung is the host of this podcast, and when he learned about her story, he was shocked by how similar it was to his own life experience. Simon now joins me in studio to talk about the series. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So how did you first come across this story? So I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I remember reading about Alana's story in the news. Just on my phone, I was in a coffee shop scrolling, and when I read it, I kind of immediately froze in my chair. I I was picking up on some of the details in the reporting about her you know, religiosity, her deep devotion, her faith, her dream of becoming a nun, and then also the secret that she was keeping that led her down um, a path towards, you know, conversion therapy, which I talk about um, in the podcast and sort of untangle. But those immediate details stuck out to me, and I was immediately crying and shaking in, in the corner, largely because I had gone through very similar experiences. I spent most of my 20s in various forms of conversion therapy in my attempt to become a Catholic priest. I really related to some of those details and felt like I recognized some of the version of Catholicism that Alana had grown up within that I sort of detected in in some of the, the details. And so I ended up finding her mother on Facebook and just trying to read as much as I could about Alana and ended up sending her an email um, sharing some of my own story and offering support. I wasn't expecting a reply at all from her. And a few months later, we got on a phone call and I learned more about Alana through her mother there. And that began the journey of me just learning more about Alana's story. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, you, you speak about these two experiences and how much you related to her and and we learn despite this you still identify as a catholic and i'm just wondering how did working on this series either challenge or really embolden your faith yeah i mean i would say uh, the process of making this podcast which happened you know 2 years ago um, 2 years ago i i really had just recently burned out of my job and was lying awake in bed. And from my texting and phone call relationship with Alana's mother, it just felt like Alana kept on haunting me. Like I, I kept on wanting to know more about what happened to her and, and wanting to investigate that. The podcast Dear Alana really does kind of follow me in real time as I uncover the details of her life. Her family granted me access to Alana's personal belongings, including her 20 journals that she left behind. And so to really read her inner thoughts and to, you know, uh, in a way, revisit my own past was really, I don't know, a a really dramatic experience. I I, I talk about often how it's so much easier to see things that have happened to you when you see them happening to other people. (laughs) I certainly think that was true as I was reading Alana's own uh, conflicts, her own, like, you know, journey to figure out her place in her community and in in the world as she was coming of age. I think a lot of listeners who don't share some of our experiences have been able to connect to that. And I think Alana articulated things that I just never found the words to, some of her confusion, some of the cognitive dissonance that she experienced, you know, all of that gave me language and words to start processing my own um, past in a way. And so I think that that has really... I have to say, like, as much as this story 
talks about religion and talks about faith and talks about sort of earnest faith for a lot of young people, um, it's really not meant to bring down religion or the church. And I'd say it's 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 I'm approaching this more as more as someone who is Catholic and feels like, you know, almost like a member of the family that needs to speak up. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, hey, guys, like something's something's off here. Like we need to have this conversation. We need to, you know, talk about how we're what messages we're, we're sending to our young people. We need to start look at, looking at our pastoral approaches. We need to, you know, talk about generally the role of faith and religion and it's sort of the messy boundary between mental health that 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 religion often plays in a lot of people's lives and so some of those themes are investigated in this project and I would say you know now kind of coming towards the end of of this journey of producing this it's my faith in many ways has like grown and 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 I'd say and largely it has to do with the many kind of amazing people and insights and and things that have happened in making this. And I credit a lot of that to Alana's own vulnerability and and having that be a way to open me up, kind of coming to terms with things that I otherwise wouldn't have come to terms with. I just want to go back to something that you mentioned off the top about you wanted to make sure or, you know, the focus and the goal of this podcast was not to take down the church. But I wonder, from your point of view, what do you think the church can do better for its members who are LGBTQ? What are some fail-safes that can be put in place to really protect people? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the big things that I try to do is show how conversion therapy which is a kind of a buzzword now but but this the many practices associated with this um, school of thought or, or way of counseling folks has unfortunately in many parts of the church become its sort of de facto approach to ministering to lgbtq folks and and oftentimes without them necessarily realizing that that's what they're doing conversion therapy when we often hear about it, we often think about it as in the way it's depicted in Hollywood, which is, you know, usually there's sort of like a very violent, physical, coercive kind of situation a person is put in against their will. Maybe it's like a shock therapy thing. Maybe it's like a Jesus camp kind of situation. But conversion therapy today and the kind of practices that Alana and I went through looks a lot more like talk therapy with a with a counselor, with a therapist, with a priest. And it draws a lot on some of these uh, neo-Freudian ideas that a lot of thinkers pioneered post-Freud around, you know, the origin stories or the origins of homosexuality being created by a broken relationship with a parent. So much of the approach stems from that thinking and that theory. And I think that, you know, it informs, unfortunately, even today, the guidance that a lot of church leaders give to parents, to families, to young people around how they can quote unquote fix or treat their sexuality, right? Their their orientation. And I think just basic awareness and understanding of how this can actually harm folks is one of the outcomes that I think and that I hope will come out of people listening to these stories is, you know, the amount of shame that, that a lot of young people experience as a result of this is is really stacked. You know, I talk about a kind of triple level of shame. Often LGBTQ folks 
have shame around just their orientation or their identity being different. That's sort of there from their environment, and, and I think a lot of folks carry. Two, there's the shame for folks like Alon and myself who've been through some of these therapies. There's the shame that we feel that something horrible happened to us, like, you know, that we've been told it made us this way. And then thirdly, there's the shame that we feel when we can't change after going through this therapy. And so I remember feeling like I must be so broken and so damaged that, you know, and God must be so far from me that I can't even, you know, overcome this as, you know, in the way it's been promised. And so I think that that has a tremendous impact on a developing psyche and a lot of pastoral leaders and, you know, well-intentioned folks just have no idea that that can really, really harm a person. And so I think bringing awareness to that is one of one of the goals and one of the ways I think that the church and communities in, in general can do better at detecting and, and protecting their, their young people. I want to listen to a bit of the podcast now. Mm. I'm going to play a clip where we hear you with Alana's mother, Joyce, and together you read through her old journals. We're in Joyce's walk-in closet and rummaging through a box of Alana's keepsakes. She wrote this. Um, she was really, really, really super religious when she wrote. So this is 2015. She wrote, Raise a glad cry, you barren, and who never bore a child. Break forth in jubilant song, you who have never been in labor. For more numerous are the children of the deserted wife than the children of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Is this from the Bible? Yeah. Do not fear, you shall not be put to shame. For the shame of your youth you shall forget. The reproach of your widowhood no longer remember. As we poke around the closet... I look up and spot two large piles of spiral notebooks. Are those all the diaries? Yeah, the the ones. She had so many of these, like, like notebooks and notebooks and notebooks. Over the last two years, Joyce has been telling me about Alana's journals. She found nearly two dozen of them in Alana's bedroom, and she's eager to show them to me in hopes that I might have some insight. I help Joyce carry them off the shelf. Oh, this is 2015, Simon. What age would she have? So she would have been 19. 19. Yeah, what was anything interesting there? Well, first she's writing, um, this is how firm a foundation, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. It looks like it's a song. It's okay. a hymn. And then she writes, maybe she wrote a poem, or is this a hymn too? I will come to you in the silence. I will lift you from all your fear. I think it's a, it's another hymn. Okay. And then she writes, Jesus, you keep answering my prayers. I ask, save me from the sin of apostry. Apostasy. That's a medieval term meaning abandoning the faith. Teach me, please. Teach me to evangelize, to proclaim, to live the faith in love, to speak of you at home and abroad. Amen. I've written these same prayers in my journals. And in reading Alana's words, I feel a little less alone. I don't know anyone else who as a teen was this focused on God. 
Joyce tells me that Alana also stood out for her religiosity. She was known around town as the saint, and not just because of her prayers. Oh my god. What? This is a letter from Shorty. And Shorty was an alcoholic that Alana met under the bridge in Boulder and would read the Bible to her. Shorty lost her children. She was like the worst drunk I met her. And Alana got her into this program to get sober. And Shorty says, hi, Alana, how are you doing? I pray you are doing well and in good spirits. I know the last letter you wrote, you were having kind of a crummy time. I don't know if I told you that I moved last week. Now I've obtained permanent housing. That's a chance in a lifetime thing. So I have my very own apartment and it's brand new and never been lived in it. I am stoked. She just, she was keeping in touch with her. Wow. This is the kind of stuff she did. We find a few other letters like this, including one from an inmate who Alana evidently visited in jail. And you can tell from these letters that Alana wasn't just some drop-in do-gooder. She really had a relationship with these people. She was always, like, helping these people. As we page through her journals, we find plenty of entries showing a young girl's enthusiasm for her faith. Transcriptions of prayers and novenas, little to-do lists, clean the car, call Lynn, go to the bank, plan for the Rwanda trip, read Evangelii Gaudium, the book by the Pope. Parking ticket, practice Hebrew. And then we come across something different. And look at this. She writes, not good enough, not good example for kids, shy, never say the right thing, useless, dry, freeloader, not a good Catholic, ugly, not important, stupid, annoying, distracted, God gave up on me, blame, careless, nothing to say, God for everything, bad daughter, don't show appreciation, impatient, Cocky, silent, never defending God, outcast. Can't talk to Father D because failure. Only think of myself, not a good friend, not a team player. Mean to joy, angry, jealous, will never love enough. Self-conscious, never live up to the saints. Confused, tempted, not pure. All I care about is Frisbee. She turns the page. God, I love you. Take all this crap, heal it, remove it, overcome it, teach me your ways, love me, carry me. I keep trying to leave you, but I want you. I want to live for you. I don't want anything between you and me. Amen. Love alone. This is crazy, Simon. All this weight that Alana carried on her own without anyone knowing. She's so hard on herself. And I wonder if Joyce ever noticed this when Alana was a kid. Was she always trying to be perfect even as like a little kid, you think? She said in one of that she was always trying to be perfect and she knew that we liked math and science and she got the best grades to keep us happy. And she didn't want like, us to fight, so she would just never do anything to get in trouble. Mm. Joyce looks at me and narrows her eyes. I feel like I need to make you a sandwich. <laughs> you haven't eaten anything. Is that just like a, a mother? <laughs> you haven't eaten anything. Even with all that's going on, she manages to be unintentionally funny.
This was, I was telling you about this, that I found this on her keyboard. It was just like kind of showed up and... I'm in Joyce's apartment and she holds up a folded letter with Alana's own curly handwriting. Do you want me to read it to you? Yeah. Dear Alana, you are just a little girl, but you really don't like yourself. What if I told you that I love who you are? I love you how you are and how you will be tomorrow. You have beautiful hair and a beautiful face, and your family would miss you if you were gone. She takes a breath. Dear Alana, I don't know what to say. I don't know... I don't know what drove you to hurt yourself so badly. You were all alone. Why were you all alone? I know you don't understand how you can be loved or redeemed. I wish you could see that the people that love you, the people that matter, they don't hold you to those standards. They don't see you as defiled. They don't see you as someone that needs to be fixed or different than who you are. The people that love you are still with you. Those other people that left, that walked away, that couldn't follow you. They couldn't handle your light. They couldn't handle the shock, the surprise. They were too weak to see you for who you really are. But your mother, your real mother, and your real father, and your brother and sisters, they have walked with you. They see you, and now I see you, and I love you so much. That was Dear Alana. It's a production of Tenderfoot TV in association with a Slept Audio and the Center for Independent Documentary. It's created, hosted, and written by Simon Kent Fung. It's produced by Lori Poliski. Simon, thank you so much for making this podcast and, and um, letting us know more about who Alana was. Thank you so much for having me. All eight episodes of the show are available to stream wherever you get your podcasts. In a new podcast called Crime Story, Kathleen Goldhar interviews journalists who have been consumed by crime for months, years, or even decades. We get to hear the behind-the-scene details of how these cases unraveled. In a second, we'll hear a fascinating conversation between Kathleen and Gilbert King, the host of the podcast Bone Valley. Last fall, Bone Valley captivated true crime podcast fans. But if you're unfamiliar with the show, let me set the scene. In 1987, a woman named Michelle Schofield was found dead. Her husband, Leo, was convicted of her murder two years later. But as Gilbert King uncovers, a teenager named Jeremy Scott confessed to the murder. Here's Gilbert King sharing what he discovered working on this case. You eventually moved to Florida to be closer to the story, which is an incredible commitment. But from your past work, I mean, we know that you throw yourself into stories like this before. But can we talk a little bit about the way you do take on a story? I I have a lot of connections in Florida that I've, I've built up over the years from my books and a lot of goodwill, I think. I do a lot of public speaking at, at, you know, judicial conferences, public defender conferences. And I'm very much there's probably not a lawyer in Florida who hasn't seen me speak, to be honest with you. So I'm really rooted in there. And it's been a really valuable way to work because 
there are, there are times that like I'll be reading uh, in one specific case an opinion from the Florida Supreme Court that I don't quite understand. And I look at who wrote it. And I said, oh, I got that guy on speed dial. I know him. You know, I've had drinks with him after a conference. Uh, I'll just call him up and ask him what he was thinking and get him on the phone and work through it. And, and that seems to happen to me all the time. So I just knew that I, if it's in Florida, I can find things out. I can get records. I, I'm, I know how to do this. And it's just a very comfortable like battleground, I guess, so to say. And I love to just sort of dive into these projects. My books take about five years to do. I didn't think a podcast was going to take me that long. I was completely wrong because it's coming up on five years uh, on that as well. But I just think the level of investigation that I want to do and to bring to this um, is just so important. And I feel like the readers have always responded to the level of detail and the thoroughness in the books that I've written. And I wanted to do that kind of narrative for a podcast. And along with you is Kelsey. And can you tell me who was she? How did you guys connect? Kelsey, interestingly enough, was uh, attending Barnard College here in New York. And she worked at the Columbia University's Butler Library, which has a lot of um, oral history. She was working as an archivist in there, sort of part-time in college. And so I would go to that library all the time to do research on my book. And, you know, once I met her, I was like, boy, you, you, did you ever want to do any freelance work? Like, what are you, what are you doing? Because I need research done. And she was open to that. And she started helping me with my book. And then we got this lead uh, on this Leo Schofield case. And I, I remember said to her, you know, this case seems really interesting, but I have this book that I'm working on. And I remember she was the one that said, well, if there's an innocent man in prison, that, that should be the priority. And so she was the one that sort of persuaded me to look into this a little more. And so finally, it came time to like go down and start researching and meet Leo Schofield. And I said, do you want to do this? Do you want to be in on this? And she said, yeah, I do. And that was it. And so we ended up working on this for the next four plus years of our lives. <laughs> And one of the things that I loved, you know, so much of this podcast always, to me, felt like just these enduring friendships and these relationships that you develop. And one of them really is with Kelsey. And so there's you, older, more experienced journalist, her young. But I felt like she took on a real leadership. I don't know if that's the right word, but you guys became very equal partners. And she brought in a strength and a humanity that was a lovely counter to you and your factual journalistic, put one foot in front of the other, keep asking the questions. Um, and I saw that develop over the podcast and I was just so taken. And I think the moment that uh, Kelsey arrived in my ears as that very important storyteller was after you guys see Michelle's autopsy pictures. Uh, you get back in the car and this happens. I mean, I was thinking about her and, like, the pain she must have felt and how scared she must have been in those last moments. You know, there was also the proximity and age. I was thinking about, you know, also, like, myself and, and all of my friends who are young women and um, could potentially be in a situation like that. Oh 
Can you tell me what Kelsey means to you and what she brought to the story? Yeah, I mean, I've often said this. I, I believe that she's the conscience of the story. And that particular scene, I was not in favor of that scene. My first instincts were like, this is too manipulative. It's not something journalistically that I would really approve of. I don't, I, I wasn't comfortable with it at all. But we played it a couple times with the producers and they thought it was really effective in a way that I couldn't really see because I didn't have a lot of audio experience. And I remember just pulling Kelsey aside and I said, look, how do you feel about this? And she goes, it's real. And that's what happened. And we kept the mic running all the time because we didn't know what we were doing. So we just said, record everything. And so we had all these moments like that, that were just a little bit more emotional than what I was used to doing. And I, I was worried that it was going to feel like we were manipulating the listener. And But they kind of convinced me that instead of just writing about what we just saw, these horrific autopsy pictures, that kind of spoke to it all right there. And the fact that she was closer in age to Michelle, the victim, really resonated to me. And I just felt like everything she says and does in the story is always honest and real. And so she she was really the conscience of this story. And I really, there's a lot of times where I just followed her lead and followed her instincts. I try to give her as much credit as possible, but I don't think anybody will ever really know the true impact she had, not just on the reporting. She was equal to me every single step of the way. Yeah, I'm so glad you kept that in. As a listener, it was insanely impactful. And it just brought Michelle back to us as opposed to it being about Leo and the injustice of Leo, which was equally as important, obviously. But it just reminded us that this somebody died. Somebody was violently killed. And Kelsey does that. She represented us, I think, in a way. That's a really beautiful way of putting it. And I can tell you, like, just you know, Michelle's brother was very moved by how we were treating everything. And we were, you know, and then same with Leo. Leo was really, really moved by Kelsey's um, reactions to these things. It's also really hurtful to him because it brought back a lot of pain about loss and the tragedy of it. And hearing Kelsey's reaction, I, I can't imagine what it's like for Leo to hear some of this stuff because it's so intensely personal. You know, we were asking a lot of him. We'd go into the prison and interview him for three hours. And we'd leave and, and he'd tell us he's a wreck for days, like just revisiting all this stuff. And it just really brought home the poignancy and the, and the, the importance of treating this in a, in a way that is respectful to everybody. Yeah, and I think journalists, like, I mean, I can feel the same. You do it for enough years and it starts to just become your job as a story. Like you're just looking for the next thing to defend your thesis as opposed to you. And so sometimes, more than sometimes, you need the people like Kelsey to bring you back to a, being about real people, you know. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and I'm so glad that I didn't like just put my foot down and say, no, this isn't traditional journalism or whatever. And I just trusted, and you know, it's like you're all working. Our team was like these young women who just had such much better instincts than I did for this stuff. I think that happens in life all the time, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> From CBC Podcasts, that was Crime Story. It's hosted by Kathleen Goldhar. She produced the podcast with Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound designed by Graham McDonald. Their senior producer is Jeff Turner. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. 
don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Next in our lineup of true crime podcasts, Someone Knows Something is Back, and Season 8 follows the case of 18-year-old Angel Karlick. Angel had just graduated high school when she disappeared in Whitehorse, Yukon in 2007. Her remains were found over five months later, but it's been 16 years and her murder is still unsolved. We'll hear David Ridgen interview Angel's friend and former caregiver, Lori Strand. She shares what she remembers about Angel. When I met Angel and Alex, Alex was this cute little boy. <laughs> his ears were so big, he had to like grow into his ears. <laughs> and Angel was just sweet. She was really quiet and uh, she liked helping me in the kitchen. She was a better cook than me. Um, probably would still be. Uh, she's thoughtful in small ways. Just little things like, uh, I like candles, so sometimes, you know, if she had some extra money and she was by the dollar store, she'd buy like a little candle, like whatever. She'd always be cleaning, moving around. Movie nights and stuff were fun. Um, she liked to crack little jokes here and there, you know. I asked Lori how Angel came back to live with her in this apartment closer to the time she disappeared. I'm always lending out a hand helping somebody. I just like to help people, I guess. <laughs> but what happened was she had a place up in the village with her boyfriend, Chris, and she would call me periodically and be like, I'm hungry, I don't have any money for food, and I would just like raid my cupboards and bring things up to her. And then I don't know what happened between her and her ex there. And she's like, I don't want to stay there anymore, I want to stay with you. It's right on the bus route, and I was like, yeah, okay, come on in. <laughs> how, so that's Chris you're talking about, what happened mm -hmm. with her ex. So how long was it between the point where she something happened with Chris and she moved in here permanently or semi-permanently? I think about a year. A year, okay, yeah. so quite a long time. Like a school year, Yeah. like a school year. So she was here for a year before she yeah. disappeared. Who was she hanging around with at the time? You said her partner, was that Chris that you came back and saw them partying, or was it uh, No, it was Mark at the time. Okay, yeah. and Mark, what's his last name, Porter? Yeah, Mark Porter. Mark Porter was reportedly dating Angel at the time she disappeared. She and Chris Dawson had broken up months before that. Porter doesn't seem to be in town at the moment, so I set him aside for now. And I don't really ever remember her dating anyone else other than them, too. I can be really, like... Like of a dry personality if I like I didn't really warm up to them I just wanted her to focus on school more than boys and going partying and stuff when she went missing she was partying a lot and like we'd get noise complaints like I came home once and her and her partner were really drunk and um, I was really upset and so if I knew she was partying a little too much I would take the key away and be like Okay, if you're gonna party all weekend and I don't, I'm leaving town as well. Like I can't get us kicked out. So that's my biggest regret is the weekend she went missing. 
I knew she was going to be partying and I didn't want her to have a party and I wasn't here. So I took the key away. And yeah, it's like the hardest, like it was that decision that really kicks me in the butt. Things could have been different. Well, that's a connection that you might make, but it might have made absolutely no difference too. So, you know, you have to measure that. Lori tells me more about the after-grad party that was planned for that weekend. Casual, unsupervised, and popular. And the after-grad party would start at what, like 9 o'clock or something? Probably 8 or 9, yeah. Where um, was it? I think it's still out at Chadburn Lake. I can show you. I'll be looking to speak with others about this party at Chadburn. I ask Lori if she has any photos of Angel. Uh, I do have one. I put it away for safekeeping. So she's getting really excited for graduation, and I gave her money to go get her high school graduation photo, and she's like all like kind of glammed up in it. It's really hard for me to see it every day. Anything else that belonged to Angel, Lori says she was careful to give it back to her family. Clothes and everything, um, and within my culture, you put everything away for a year, and you, I kept it for the year, and then gave it back to the family. Everything that was hers, I made sure her grandmother and her mother got it back to good hope. But Lori did keep the Dreamcatcher, and something else. I've had this coat in my closet for years, just keep it as a keepsake. Nothing special about it. It's a small coat that still looks new. It's DC. It was one of her favorite brands. I honestly don't know where she got this coat, but she wore it. And it's kind of rain jackety. It looks like a boy's coat to me. I don't know. So it's got kind of like a pattern, uh, sort of one of those endless patterns. Does that have an inside pocket on it? Inside? Oh, yeah. yeah. Anything in it? No. Hmm. When she first went missing, um, it kind of smelled like her, so I would just kind of like cuddle with it. But, um, yeah, it doesn't smell like her anymore. Lori's memories of Angel intensify as she traces the design on the coat with her fingers. She smiles as she presses the fabric to her heart, and then a tear forms. The thing with Angel's killer, what really freaks me out is this person is probably close enough in this small community that I might be greeting this person with happy, joyous moments, you know, like I might be happy to see this person and they have this dark secret. And I honestly believe that somebody in this community knows. And they're just choosing not to say and letting Alex and the rest of Angel's family, including myself, be tortured. Because there's not a day that goes by that you don't think of her. And it might be something little, like when my nephew, he, we were at the beach last summer and he had dirty feet and I was washing them in the lake and I was thinking, of, like, Angel just popped into my head and I thought of her little stubby feet, you know? 
and a lot of her friends are parents now and you know like I could be another auntie like to her kids. That was Someone Knows Something, the Angel Carlet case. It's hosted and reported by David Ridgen. It's produced by Hadil Abdelnabi. If you want to learn more about the series, we'll have more info on our website. Go to cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. There, we'll share details for all the shows you hear today. Next up, an interesting take on true crime consumption. A question that a lot of true crime fans seem to be faced with is whether or not it's good for you. Like everything, there's some nuance to it. On the podcast You're Wrong About, host Sarah Marshall invites a writer named Emma Burquist on the show. They discuss her article titled, True Crime is Rotting Our Brains. And you talk about this in your article, and I love in this the moment, because this really kind of hit me like a lightning bolt when you talk about the idea that when we deconstruct famous murder or, or you know, missing woman cases, there's lately this undercurrent of like, if only she had read more true crime. Right. Like, oh, if she if she had known this and she would have known not to do this. And it's like, well, that, I don't understand how that's different than saying, like, why was she out so late? Why was she dressed like mm. that? I mean, it's it's just a way of, again, blaming, you know, a woman for something that, like, is not her fault in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. You never know what you're going to do in that scenario. You, you never know whether you're going to freeze up, whether you're going to be able to fight back. Like, you just don't know. Judging people that have been murdered is not not a good thing to do. Not a good pastime, yeah. And I, I mean, it even reminds me of the comforting nature of slasher movies and how you have like the scream model of don't have sex, right? Don't go to different parts of the house, don't drink, don't do drugs, like be virtuous all the time, always on the off chance that there might be a killer out there. Yeah, <laughs> and that's such a strange thing to have this migration from horror movies into now this idea that we should know what story we're living inside of. And it's like, right. It's not a story. It's just, it's stuff and it's happening. I think part of that is because a lot of, a lot of true crime now, um, you know, when it started, it was just very factual reporting done by, you know, journalists, which were usually just reports taken from the police Mm -hmm. with, you know, in cold blood, you, you have this sort of narrative true crime now. And while I think it's good that we're not just taking cops at their word anymore about, you know, what what crimes happened. Turning it into a narrative does make it a story. And Mm. when you have a story, people are going to look for morals and they're going to have that sense that it's it's a fiction. Because as a writer, even if even if you're writing about true crime, you are always going to put your own subjective views into it. Mm -hmm. You can't write a book without like a beginning, middle and end. It has to have a story and it has to have like an overarching theme. And I think podcasts do the same thing. Like each episode is like a a chapter. Mm -hmm. You are forcing a narrative onto something that really isn't a story. It's not fiction. It's it's something different. And as a writer, like how do you see true crime or people who consume true crime? Do you see them trying to impose the laws of fiction onto real life? Yeah, there's this this sense that there's going to be a happy ending mm. or the good guy's going to go free or the bad guy's going to get caught. And that's just not how life works. One argument that I, I hear a lot is that true crime reveals a lot of sort of the failures of the police and the failures of the justice system. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that, but it is often a case-by-case basis. That's not really a way to to fix things. And, and there's the sense that like, well, the story will be over when we get 
this guy out of prison who was wrongly convicted of a crime. Mm-hmm. And like maybe or maybe not, they get out. We, you know, it depends on, on the story, but that's not the end. That's not the end of the story. It shouldn't stop there because all the things that put this person in prison, you know, undeservedly are still are still there. The entire structure is still there. Mm-hmm. Taking this as a narrative with a beginning and an end, it's a way to say like, okay, well, that was done. Justice is served. I can mm. put that out of my thinking now and, and not sort of look at the system and say like, oh, this system is working exactly as intended. Right. And it's a different kind of catharsis, I feel like, because you're like, oh, no, like we found the guilty guy and we figured out this other guy's innocent. Done now. We fixed it. It's like, well, you fix it for one person. Right. You know, there's a lot of people that are probably in prison, you know, that shouldn't be. And it's really kind of sad that we just have to hope that enough podcasts are made to, to free them all. And it's like, that doesn't seem like a good long-term solution. Podcasts are great. Like God knows I love them, but like, they're not going to cure all of society's ills. And yeah, also like, we yeah. need time to talk about Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> that was You're Wrong About. It's hosted by Sarah Marshall. And her guest in that episode was Emma Burquist. That's all we have for today. Do you have any true crime recommendations? We're always looking for new shows, so please send them our way. You can email us at podcastplaylist at cbc.ca, or you can find us on Facebook at CBC Podcast Playlist. Podcast Playlist is Kelsey Cueva, Caleb Buys, and Julian Uzielli, with technical support from Juliana Romanic. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.